Well, let's open our Bibles to Mark chapter 5, okay? Today we're going to be looking at Mark uh, 5, verses 21 to 43. Mark 5, 21 to 43. If you're visiting with us today, welcome. My name is Isaac Cantrell. I'm the pastor here, and I hope I can get around to shaking your hand and introducing myself to you. Um, Please don't be scared to come up and shake mine if I hadn't got around to you. I'm so glad you're with us today. We've been going through the book of Mark verse by verse, and this is where we're up to today. Mark 5, 21 to 43. We have here in this passage two different situations, if you will, that kind of merge into one. And once again, we get to see the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ on display in these two situations. By the way, that's what you're going to find over and over again when you read the Gospels. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, repeatedly, over and over again, here it is. Look at him. Look at what he's doing. Look at what he's saying. Look at his glory. And They're just all demonstrating, all four Gospels, this is God in the flesh. And he has changed humanity forever. He's changed everything forever. That's not an exaggeration. You know, the word epic gets thrown around quite a bit in our day, right? But if there ever was something that that is truly epic, it is what God has done for human beings, through his Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. It's nothing less than world-changing. Jesus changes everything. And if you don't know him today in a saving way, I pray that you will see his glory today and come to him. Let's read our passage now. Mark 5, 21 to 43. This is the word of the living and true God. And when Jesus had crossed again in the boat to the other side, a great crowd gathered about him, and he was beside the sea. Then came one of the rulers of the synagogue, Jairus by name. And seeing him, he fell at his feet and implored him earnestly, saying, My little daughter is at the point of death. Come and lay your hands on her so that she may be made well and live. And he went with him. And a great crowd followed him and thronged about him. And there was a woman who had a discharge of blood for 12 years and who had suffered much under many physicians and had spent all that she had and was no better but rather grew worse. She had heard the reports about Jesus and came up behind him in the crowd and touched his garment. For she said, if I touch even his garments, I will be made well. And immediately the flow of blood dried up and she felt in her body that she was healed of her disease. And Jesus Perceiving in himself that power had gone out from him, immediately turned about in the crowd and said, Who touched my garments? And his disciples said to him, You see the crowd pressing around you, and yet you say, Who touched me? 
And he looked around to see who had done it. But the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came in fear and trembling and fell down before him and told him the whole truth. And he said to her, Daughter, your fate has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. While he was still speaking, there came from the ruler's house some who said, Your daughter is dead. Why trouble the teacher any further? But overhearing what they said, Jesus said to the ruler of the synagogue, Do not fear, only believe. And he allowed no one to follow him except Peter and James and John, the brother of James. They came to the house of the ruler of the synagogue, and Jesus saw a commotion, people weeping and wailing loudly. And when he had entered, he said to them, Why are you making a commotion and weeping? The child is not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him. But he put them all outside and took the child's father and mother and those who were with him and went in where the child was. Taking her by the hand, he said to her, Talitha kumi, which means... Little girl, I say to you, arise. And immediately the girl got up and began walking, for she was 12 years of age, and they were immediately overcome with amazement. And he strictly charged them that no one should know this and told them to give her something to eat. Amen. That's God's eternal word. May he write it on our hearts. This morning, I just want to do kind of a walkthrough of this passage with you and just kind of experience it together, okay? That's first. And then second of all, talk about a, a little bit towards the end what it demonstrates to us on a bigger scale, if you will, okay? So let's, let's dive in here. One thing that's interesting to me in verse 17, which is what we covered last week, we notice that those townspeople across the Sea of Galilee, they begged Jesus to leave. You remember that? He had performed this miracle of casting many demons out of this man, this man that they had looked at for so long. They couldn't control him. They couldn't help him. They couldn't do anything for him. And all of a sudden, he is well. And it terrified them. And they seemed to just feel more um, comfortable in their lives without Jesus causing waves like that around their town. So they beg him to leave. But when he comes back to the other side of, of the sea in the area of Capernaum, we see a man who is doing the opposite. He's begging Jesus for help. So the story kind of goes from, please go away, Jesus, to please come help me, Jesus. And this request comes from a man who is a very prominent figure in the community, this man named Jairus. He's one of the rulers of the synagogue. And just to explain that a little bit, this man would have been in charge 
of the organization and planning of the services at the synagogue. He would have been in charge of keeping the service orderly and lawful and hopefully God-honoring. And he would line up the speaking schedule for different rabbis and teachers who would come through and teach. This was a very distinguished position to have in the community, the ruler of the synagogue. And with Jesus giving some of those religious leaders of his day heartburn, so to speak, they didn't like him very much, it probably would have taken a great deal of courage and a great deal of humility and maybe even some desperation for Jairus, the ruler of the synagogue, this distinguished man, to come and bow before Jesus and ask for his help. And what's the issue he needs help with? His daughter's sick. His little daughter. Truthfully, uh, sick is an understatement because the way Jairus words it says that she's about to die. She is at the end of her life at the ripe old age of 12. He says, my little daughter, my darling, is dying. And he uses the word, he uses the word eschatos. Many of you have heard the theological term eschatology. That's the term for when we study the end times, we're talking about eschatology. It's the study of last things. That's the word that Jairus uses for his little 12-year-old girl. She's at her eschatos. She's at her end. I know she's about to die, in other words. And no doubt he would have been very emotional here, right? As any father would have. This is his only daughter, by the way. It says that in Luke 8. And the Bible says he fell down at Jesus' feet and implored him earnestly. And I know we don't use that phrase in English very much, implored him earnestly. It basically just means he's begging Jesus with all of his heart and with all of his soul, please come lay your hands on my daughter and she will live. Apparently, Jairus had seen or heard what Jesus was doing for other people in the community, and he was convinced this man can heal my daughter. Maybe no one else can help her but that guy. He can, and I'm going to ask him. I'm going to beg him. He may have been ridiculed by his religious leaders that he worked with in the synagogue. I don't know. But we don't read that Jesus even hesitated to go with him. It says he went with him, verse 24. So that's the opening of this um, twofold situation. The other major thing that's going on, as they're going to Jairus' house, there's this crowd building up. They're, they're, they heard what Jairus said, and they saw Jesus go with him, so they're like, oh, he's about to heal somebody. Let's go see this. So there's a crowd here. And while they're making their way there, there's another life that's about to be changed. <laughs> there's a woman who had a really bad bleeding problem. And she's had this problem for 12 years. Can you imagine that? 
Ladies, I, I know you go through a lot of things with your bodies. But without, you know, getting too graphic in a crowd of all ages this morning, just imagine that you began bleeding one day and it did not stop for 12 years. Can you imagine that? And there's all sorts of problems that come along with that for a woman in this culture. First of all, she would have been ritually unclean that entire time. According to the law of Moses, Leviticus 15. And of course, in a normal situation, the bleeding would stop, obviously. That's how the Lord designed the female body to work. But this poor woman had been ritually unclean for 12 years years and anyone who touched her or anyone who sat where she sat would become unclean as well so that means really if you think about it she was as bad off ritually speaking as a leper she couldn't be married she couldn't go to the synagogue to worship there she couldn't have normal social interactions with people. She would have basically been an outcast due to that horrible condition. And, it's, and it says on top of all this, she had spent all of her money on doctor's bills. Can anybody identify with that? Maybe not like this lady, but some of you have spent a lot of money on doctor's bills, I'm sure. But it says none of those doctors have been able to help her. It says, in fact, they made it worse. I'm sure they didn't purposefully make it worse, but whatever medication they were using at the time for that condition, whatever treatments they were prescribing or trying, they were not only not working, they were actually worsening her bleeding. So again... We're trying to experience this in our minds for a moment. Just put yourself in this poor woman's shoes. Bleeding constantly and embarrassingly. Outcast from society. Prohibited from public places of worship. Destitute financially. And getting worse instead of getting better. I cannot hardly imagine that situation. But one day she hears about Jesus. And she says to herself, similar to what Jairus was thinking probably, that man can help me. And maybe, I don't know how I'm going to do it, but maybe I can get close enough to just touch his clothes. If I can do that, maybe I'll be healed. In fact, I'm wording it more Loosely than she did. She was more sure of it than the way I just worded it. Because Mark says her thoughts were this. Verse 28. If I even touch his garments, I will be made well. She had faith. I just need one touch of Jesus and I know I'll be healed. That was her thought process. And so that's what she does. She finds Jesus... And lo and behold, when she finds him, he's on his way to Jairus' house. And she works her way into the crowd. It doesn't give all the details of how this happened. But she makes her way all the way up to Jesus, maybe squeezing in between people or getting 
pancaked every now and then as they're going down the road until she's right behind Jesus and she just reaches out and touches his clothes. Just a touch. And amazingly, it says in verse 29, immediately the flow of blood dried up and she felt in her body that she was healed of the disease. Just pause here for a second, okay? Remember how I told you a few weeks ago, when you read a miracle in Scripture, we ought to just sit with it for a minute and be amazed and not fly by it. This woman, she just touched Jesus' clothes. That's it. And she was healed instantly of a seemingly incurable disease, at least at that time. What kind of power does Jesus have then? What, we'll ask with the disciples, what sort of man is this? One touch and you're healed? Just one touch of his clothes and you're healed? Don't let that run by you. This is called for worship. We could just bow our heads right now and worship. This is amazing. I know we read these things in Scripture, some of us our whole lives, and it just doesn't click with us sometimes how amazing some of these things are. Can you imagine the thoughts and the emotions of this woman as she touches the garment and then maybe immediately I'm healed. I can feel it. Bleeding's done. And it says Jesus, in that moment, Jesus stops. This big old crowd's moving down the road. They're kind of in a hurry, right? They're going to heal a little girl. He is. And he stops. And he turns around. And he says, he asks a question that might have seemed Weird at first. He said, who touched my garments? Now, right there, I don't know about you, my mind was pulled in various directions here because on the one hand, I tried to put myself in Jairus' shoes. I've just come to Jesus and begged him to heal my little daughter because she's at death's door. And on the way there... Time is of the essence, right? And Jesus stops and asks this really odd question, who touched my garments? And I just wonder if that was, if this interruption was frustrating to Jairus from a human standpoint. You know, why are we stopping? We need to hurry. She's going to die. And maybe I can just, Maybe I could just uh, interject at this moment in the story and say, there's a lot of times in life I've figured this out. I'm not good at it, but I've figured this out enough to recognize it, that sometimes, many times, what we perceive as interruptions are just opportunities for God to do amazing things. We tend to get aggravated with interruptions, Right? We think interruptions are a bad thing most times, but interruptions are part of God's plan. 
I have to remind myself of that. Interruptions can be opportunities to witness God's glory. So maybe next time I'm working on something, or the next time you're working on something, you know, you, you've set this goal, you've set your mind to do something, to get something accomplished, and you get interrupted by whatever, by children, by a phone call, by car problem, a house problem, whatever it is. Somebody comes up that you weren't expecting to come up, just ask yourself, what's God doing here? Open up your eyes, you know, get, get out of the tunnel vision of whatever project you're working in and, and see the big picture. It's not a derailing. It might feel like a derailing of our plans, but it's not interrupting God's plan because maybe God's plan is the interruption, right? So this interruption by this suffering woman's part of the plan. By the way, it worked out beautifully in the end, as it always will when God's working, right? Yes. So back to Jesus in this crowd. He turns around. He says, who touched my garments? And the disciples kind of get aggravated with him a little bit, I think, by the wording here. They're like, there's a crowd pressing in all around you. What do you mean who touched you? In other words, everybody's touching you. What do you mean, Jesus? And Jesus doesn't even respond to that question. He kind of just patiently deals with their ignorance. And he keeps looking around at the crowd for someone to admit to touching him. He could tell the difference, right, between just crowd touching him and the touch of faith that he just felt, right? The crowd was just trying to hustle and bustle. Let's keep up with him so we can see what's going on. But this woman's touch was a believing touch. And it says that Jesus perceived that power had gone out from him. He knew exactly what had happened. He just wanted to make it known. So this woman, can you imagine? She's unclean. She just went through a bunch of people in the crowd and touched them, presumably, and touched Jesus as well, and now he stops and said, who did that? She might have been afraid that Jesus was going to scold her, right? Berate her for touching him in her unclean state, right? Maybe she thought he would view that as she stole something from him. She didn't ask, she just kind of stole it somehow. She wasn't sure. She knew Something magnificent had just happened to her, though. So she comes forward, and she's trembling in fear, and she falls down before Jesus, and it says she tells him everything. And so everybody around them would have heard everything, too. She told them about the bleeding problem. She told them that no one had been able to fix her. She had spent all her money trying to get fixed, no, no help, only got worse. She told the whole thing. And it's so beautiful. Jesus doesn't scold her. Jesus doesn't berate her or chide her or shun her or command her to get out of here. None of that, not even a hint. Instead, this poor woman who probably didn't have anybody that truly cared about her, at least in 12 years, she gets to hear these tender words coming out of Jesus' mouth. 
daughter. Your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. Do you see his compassion for people? There is not a hint of harshness in it. And that's the way Jesus is with all sinners who come to him, by the way. He's compassionate with us. He never sends people away or rejects them. This woman, he says, daughter. When's the last time she heard that word directed at her? Might have been a long time, right? And when's the last time she lived one peaceful day? But he says, go in peace. No more bleeding problem. No more uncleanness. She can truly have peace in her life now. Just beautiful. Now, right as this is happening, Jesus is talking to this woman. Another person comes up to Jairus, who's back here watching, I guess. And he's got some bad news. And he doesn't mince words with Jairus. Whoever this messenger is, he doesn't mince words at all. He's pretty blunt. He just says, your daughter's dead. Why are you going to trouble the teacher anymore? In other words, there's nothing anyone can do now, not even Jesus. Do you see how the messenger viewed Jesus a little bit there? He's just a teacher. Why trouble the teacher anymore? Your daughter's dead. Don't trouble the teacher anymore. Just why don't you come in and mourn with the rest of us? It doesn't phase Jesus one bit, though. He just looks at Jairus, and he says, Do not fear, only believe. And they just keep on going up the road in the direction of Jairus' house. And this time, Jesus doesn't let anybody follow them there. Just Peter, James, and John, and the father and the mother, they go into the house. And when they go in, there's these mourners there, already working, that quick. They're weeping They're wailing, they're playing their dirges and so forth. By the way, I said working because in in this culture, when somebody died, they would hire professional mourners to wail and make a lot of noise so that people around the community knew, oh my goodness, somebody died. And the more wealthy you were, the more mourners you would hire. So Jesus sees these mourners doing their thing and he says, Why are you making all that noise? This child is just sleeping. And by that, he he didn't mean that she really wasn't dead. She was dead. But he was saying, what happened to her is not final. It's just like sleeping to me. It's not over, in other words. And so the mourners, when they heard Jesus, they, they just laughed. They thought he was crazy or stupid or something. But Jesus takes charge here, throws them all outside. That's the word used there, by the way. He throws them out. Get out of here. They don't get the privilege to witness what he's about to do. And they go in the room where this little girl was. And I guess maybe that was the first time Jairus had seen his daughter's dead body because he was away when she died. He was with Jesus. And he showed up with Jesus. So no doubt he's restraining himself. And he just, maybe he just holds his wife and they just watch. Jesus said, believe.
It gets me. Jesus bends down and he takes the little girl's lifeless hand. I don't know if you've ever felt a lifeless hand before. He takes his lifeless hand. By the way, to touch a dead body was also something that made someone ritually unclean. But uncleanness doesn't stop Jesus. Uncleanness doesn't keep Jesus away. Praise God for that. So he takes her hand and he says in Aramaic, which was the language spoken at that time, he says, Talitha kumi. And Mark translates it for us. It means little girl, I say to you, arise. Or little lamb, I say to you, arise. I wonder if those were the words that Jairus or Jairus's wife had woken their little girl up to in the mornings. Good morning, my little lamb. Time to get up. Well, Jesus tells her, hey, little lamb, it's time to get up. And when he says those words to her, this dead corpse, the little girl opens her eyes, and the first person she gets to see is Jesus. And she gets up and she starts walking around. In other words, she's fine. She's 100% well, and it says they're all overcome with amazement. Going from death's door to dying to being perfectly well again like that. This was no ordinary teacher, as the messenger said. Don't trouble the teacher any longer. She's dead. She ain't dead no more. (laughs) The teacher brought her back from the dead. So yes, Jesus has power even over death. Amazing, amazing. Well, we kind of try to experience our way through the passage, if you will. Let's talk about this as, as we close here, just a few more minutes. These two situations, Jairus and his daughter, his family, and the situation with the bleeding woman, they demonstrate to us some larger truths about humanity And the Lord Jesus in general, and I hope this will be helpful for us to think about. Here's the first one. We all have embarrassing problems that we cannot fix ourselves. Embarrassing, you think of the words, defiling problems. In some cases, maybe disgusting problems private problems that we cannot fix ourselves. For this woman to bleed 12 years straight, that would have been extremely humiliating. And there was nothing she could do about it. But doesn't that describe us in our sin as well? Maybe you tried before to beat some particular sin on your own. You tried to overcome it without God's help. And you quickly found out, I'm sure, that you just end up going right back to it eventually. Like, that's what we do in our sin. Like a pig goes back to the mud, right? You just don't have the power within yourself to fix yourself. None of us do. 
And there's all sorts of embarrassing sins that we could talk about that are defiling and maybe private. Maybe, maybe you've had a pornography problem, a lust problem. Maybe you've had a drinking problem that nobody even knows about except you and those who live with you. Maybe you have an anger problem. Maybe you have an impatience problem. Maybe you have a pride problem. You, we could go on and on. Your sin and my sin, all those embarrassing, shameful sins, they will eventually take us down. And I'm here to tell you that there is nothing that you or I can do about our sin in ourselves that will make it any better. It's out of our control. We can't take away the shame and the guilt. We can't defeat that particular thing. Well, if I just do steps one through whatever, I'll know I'll beat this. It's not how it works with sin. It will eventually take us down to the grave and down to hell even. That's what sin does. It kills us. It ruins us, right? And I know... It is so easy for us to say, well, I know I'm not perfect. No one is. We're all sinners. And that's a true statement, right? But it's a really sanitary way of talking about our sin. Our sins, especially the ones that lurk in here, that we try to hide, they're much darker than that, aren't they? There are things that you and I would probably like to keep private forever. They're that bad. You're worse than most people realize. And so am I, by the way. I'm not pointing that at you alone. Turn it back to me. We are worse than most people realize. I mean, for instance, if we saw each other's, each other's thoughts we'd be really embarrassed more times than we care to admit, right? We are, I'm just trying to paint the picture that we are embarrassingly sinful. This is a, just an overarching problem that we all have as fallen human beings. Just like this woman, we've got this embarrassing problem. In our case, it's a sin problem and we cannot fix it ourselves. Are you willing to admit that is a big question. Are you willing to think of yourself that way this morning? Because that's the first step to being healed. So in many ways, we are the bleeding woman. Here's another problem we have. We have a death problem. What I mean by that... It, can actually be multi-level. I mean, first of all, we have a very literal death problem. We are all headed for death, right? Death is going to get every single person in this room eventually. Doesn't matter how rich you are. Doesn't matter how famous you might become. We're all going to die. I remember seeing pictures of Steve Jobs few years back when he was dying. They were sad pictures to see him just withering away like that. Steve Jobs was the uh, former, excuse me, CEO of Apple. 
and he had pancreatic cancer. He had all the money you could possibly want. He had all the human resources that a person could ever need or want. And what happened to him? Same thing's going to happen to all of us. He died. He couldn't stop it. With all of his resources, he could not stop death. His body eventually failed under the disease of cancer. We have a death problem. That's what sin does to us. It kills. Started way back in the garden. God told Adam and Eve, if, if you disobey in this area, you're going to die. And he warned them out of love. Don't do this or you'll die. And they rebelled against him and that's exactly what happened. They instantly died spiritually, but physically they started dying right then. And every human being descended from Adam and Eve, which is all of us, inherited that exact nature. And so sin will bring death to all of us eventually. Our bodies deteriorate. And they'll deteriorate past that fine line where we lose just enough essential function to die. Even 12-year-old girls die in a fallen world. Isn't that sad? My wife works at the Children's Hospital of Georgia over in Augusta. And it will absolutely rip your heart out some of the stories that you hear coming out of that place about little children and the suffering that they're going through in their bodies. What is that? Why does that happen? It's very simple. The world is broken due to sin. Sin is is wreaking havoc on our world. God said it would, and it has, and it's sad. And that's the great fear that all human beings tend to have, is death, dying. It's even sad to Jesus, by the way. You remember when he was standing at Lazarus' tomb? That's his friend. He loved Lazarus. Lazarus has died, and it says that Jesus wept. He felt the sting of death in this world when his close friend died. Death is not something that God originally put in this world. It was not here before sin. And we can see it in Romans chapter 5. The Apostle Paul says that sin came into the world through one man, that's Adam, and death came through sin. That's Romans 5.12. And it says there that death spread to all men because all sinned. We have a death problem. We even live in a culture of death. What I mean by that, we live in a society that we can kill an unborn human being. It's perfectly legal to do so with our twisted laws. We live in a world that has programs like the MAID program in Canada medical assistance in dying there are doctors who will help you kill yourself if you meet certain criteria what is that but a culture of death we live in a society who, who's working to um, 
normalize these gender transitions where people actually believe they can be a different gender than God gave them at birth. We give them chemicals to alter their body composition. We cut off external organs. We essentially sterilize these people in the name of gender-affirming care. What is that but a culture of death? We could go on and on, couldn't we, about the culture of death and how we've got a death problem in multiple levels. Now that's the bad news. Here's the good news. Jesus is the solution to both. I know that's real simple, but it's true. Jesus is the solution both to our sin problem, all these embarrassing, shameful, defiling sins that all of us commit. And he's the solution to our death problem. And we see him both in Mark 5. Jesus heals a woman of the most embarrassing, humiliating, defiling condition. And we see also the power of Jesus to control life and death itself. He gives life to dead people. No one else can do that. Only him. By the way, he's the solution in those two things for all people. He's the solution for a woman suffering for 12 years. And he's the solution for a little girl who's only lived 12 years. And did you notice how different their social backgrounds were? The bleeding woman had nothing. She's an outcast of society. And Jairus and his family, they were prominent, well off. So rich, poor, outcast, respected, young, old, whatever social background, whatever upbringing you have, whatever religious background you came from when you were brought up, Jesus is the solution to your sin problem and your death problem and mine. And I've got three short sub points under that heading as we close. Bear with me. Hang in there. I know you're hungry. I am too. First notice this. I've already mentioned it. Jesus' compassion. Did you see the compassion and the gentleness that Jesus had for these people? He called the woman daughter. He is gentle and fatherly with her. He shows her that he cares for her. You're not an outcast to me, daughter. And then when the little girl, in all the commotion and all the amazement, he says, hey, get her something to eat. Because they might have forgot. They're too busy celebrating. She might have been on her deathbed for how many days? I don't know. Has she eaten in a long time? Apparently not, because Jesus... So thoughtful, compassionate, even thinks of the little things. Hey, give her something to eat. It's just indicative of how Jesus operates. He is compassionate. And I also noticed that part of, um, of Jesus' care for the bleeding woman was bringing her out in public, so to speak. He wanted her story to be known. Think about that. It could have went down like this. She comes up behind him, touches his garment, 
She's healed privately, and Jesus sort of glanced backwards and goes, I got you. No one will ever know. It's just between me and you, lady. But that's not what Jesus did. He doesn't want her to hide. He wants everyone to see what he did for this woman. There's a um, Welsh evangelist named Ivor Powell. He said this, Thus would Christ teach his followers that they who are healed by his grace should tell their story to a waiting world. Christianity is not a private faith. In other words, it's not something that we ought to keep to ourselves. You don't keep the greatest news known to man to yourself, right? That's not loving. That's cruel. To love people is to let them know what Jesus has done and what he will do if they repent and come to him in faith. And Jesus just says, come out of the shadows, lady. Tell them what happened. Just like he told the demon-possessed man, right? Go and tell all your friends what God has done for you and how he's had mercy on you. And Psalm 107, 2 says, Let the redeemed of the Lord say so, whom he has redeemed from trouble. Let them know, in other words. He's compassionate with sinners and sufferers. And we ought to be the same with other fellow sinners and sufferers. Next sub point, notice his willingness to touch the unclean. Isn't that glorious? Jesus cares more about mercy than sacrifice. He is willing to touch the unclean people. He's willing to touch dead people. Isn't that what he's done, by the way, in coming to earth He's willing to leave his throne and get down into the dirt to save humanity. He's willing to literally take our curse. Isn't that what he did at the cross? He took on himself our sin and paid for it there. He didn't touch us with a long pole. You know the saying, I wouldn't touch that thing with a 10-foot pole. Jesus didn't keep us at a distance like that. He did the unthinkable. He became one of us. What condescension bringing us redemption that in the dead of night, not one faint hope in sight, God gracious, tender, laid aside his splendor, stooping to woo, to win, to save my soul. You and I were unclean. And he was willing to touch us. You and I were dead. And he was willing to touch us and make us alive for the first time. Praise the Lord. And then lastly for today, these things that we've been talking about, the solution for these embarrassing, defiling, shameful sins, the solution for our death problem, are all graciously provided through simple faith in Him. That is, in Jesus. Jesus told that woman that her her faith in Him made her well. 
And he told Jairus, just believe, Jairus. And that's how Jesus fixes us too. That's how he rids us of our uncleanness. That's how he gives us victory over death. It's given to us through faith in Jesus. It's not through sacraments. It's not through good works. It's not through doing more good works than bad and then God's going to weigh them at the end or something. It's not even through loving others or being kind to others, although those things are good. The way God fixes human beings, and I mean by fixes, I mean cleanses, gives spiritual life to, plucks us off the path of destruction and gives us eternal life, all of that, salvation is by grace through faith. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing, it's the gift of God. Not of works, lest any man should boast. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. So, maybe the Lord has shown you today in your heart as you sat there or as you've listened to this later down the road sometime through the internet. Maybe the Lord has shown you that you're just like this lady in Mark 5. You have some embarrassing problems. Some Shameful problems. And you spent all your resources on worldly solutions. And nothing has been able to fix you. Jesus says to you, come to me and I'll give you life. Drink of me and you'll never thirst again. It's not about your works. It's about his works. He's completed everything that we need to be saved. And ours is but to turn to him, turn away from our sin, turn to him. That's repentance. And then put our faith and trust in him. And we're made right with God as instantly as that woman's bleeding stops. Right with God. Right then. There's no process to it. So... Maybe you're somebody that's already come to him. Praise God. Just, if that's you, then just take in this breathtaking portrait of Jesus from Mark 5 and fall on your face and praise him. Because you were just like these two ladies here, unable to help yourself and dead. So now he's saying to you, if I've touched you, come out from hiding. Let it be known. The world needs to hear, right? Let the redeemed of the Lord say so. Amen. Let's pray together. Father, we are thankful for your compassion on sinners like us. Lord, our problems are even more embarrassing and defiling than the woman that we looked at today with the bleeding issue. As horrific as that was for her, Lord, our problems are worse. Our problems will not only kill us, if left unaddressed, they'll also take us to hell where we deserve to go. But you swooped in. You touched us. 
you said, my little child, arise. And we got up. And we're amazed at your mercy and grace, Lord. Help us to tell everyone about this Savior who swooped in to save the lowest. If they'll but put their faith in him, he will do it for them. And Lord, we are thankful as we're about to fellowship with one another. We are thankful once again for 44 years of this church's existence. We, we want to continue to be faithful, Lord. We want to improve where we are weak. We want to keep going where we're strong. We want to live up to our name, Jackson Bible Church. Help us to be faithful to your word and to your gospel. Make us a beacon of gospel hope in this area. Lord, we thank you for all the saints that have gone before us here. We thank, we're thankful for past leadership of this church through the years. In many ways, we are merely watering the seeds that they have already planted. And we just pray you'd help us continue watering and continue planting more until you return to get us. And Lord, we give you all the praise for everything you've done for Jackson Bible Church and no doubt what you're going to do in the future. And thank you that we can spend some time together eating and fellowship and, and laughing and having conversations. All of it is of your grace. We pray this in the name of Jesus and for his glory. Amen.